Good morning. I am very happy to be here with you again and able to speak to you again. Um, I wasn't here for the last two weeks when Peter Cushman was preaching. Uh, actually, I was planning to preach this week on Acts 17, and then I noticed that's what Peter preached on last week. So I pivoted to a different topic, of course. But I am looking forward to going back and hearing those messages. I think very highly of Peter, and I'm just delighted that he will be here with us to be part of our congregation. I was not here because we were in Ecuador. Carrie and I were in Ecuador the last two Sundays. And a week ago today, I was sitting in a missionary's home in Rio Bamba, Ecuador, with a number of other missionaries also there with us, and a few other uh, guests from the U.S., Carrie and I and a few others. And one of the other guests, as we were talking, asked the question, what is it that motivates you to be here? What is it that motivates you to stay here? And a dozen or so missionaries in the room took turns saying what was their motivation, what was their um, joy, what was it that kept them uh, on, on track. And, and to a large extent, they said more or less the same thing over and over. In my, 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 my regular job, I'm a professor at Bob Jones. I teach missions. I'm a missions guy. That's been my life, basically, my entire adult life in one way or another. But I also teach some Bible courses. And I find it is a constant source of challenge and uh, intrigue to, to try to motivate students. Like, what motivates students? Some students are motivated by grades. Some are motivated by um, accolades. You know, some are motivated by fear. Uh, and... Um, and I also oversee our, at Bob Jones, the, what we call the Center for Global Opportunities, which is all of the outreach, missions outreach, as well as local community outreach, gospel outreach. And, and I've been doing that now, I guess, for about eight years since we started the Center for Global Opportunities. And I find that probably the biggest single challenge, at least from my perspective, is motivating students. Um, we have tried everything short of actually paying students, bribing them to go, and try to think of what, what challenges students, what motivates students. And as we come to this morning to a very, very familiar text, um, I think it's interesting that Peter would say that we, um, we have the danger, the tendency of looking at familiar passages and maybe just reading over them. I come today to a very familiar text. Um, and to be, to be honest with you, uh, I've, been, I've been doing mission stuff for decades. And for a large part of that time, I avoided any of the familiar passages. Like, everybody's heard a sermon on Matthew 28. Um, everybody's heard a sermon on Acts 1, and so forth. But then, as I started teaching missions and, and getting more, uh, maybe, intensely engaged with different texts... I began to realize that there were parts of the text that maybe we were overlooking. And so today, I do want us to go again to Matthew chapter 28, to what we know as the Great Commission. I want us to look at not just the pattern or the content. I think probably everyone here could tell us, what does the Great Commission say? What is it that Jesus gave us to do? But what I really want to look for in this text is the motivation. 
because I think it's there. I think it's actually rather clear once you see it. And I think that will help us to think in terms of what should drive us, what should push us, what should motivate us in our uh, engagement with those around us. One of the dangers of calling this passage the Great Commission passage is that sometimes we think it's only for missionaries. This is our go week, this is our missions focus, and the Great Commission obviously fits that focus. But the Great Commission is not just for the the vocational missionary, it is for all of us. What Jesus gave his disciples that day on the mountain applies to every single one of us. Every follower of Jesus partakes in that mandate to make disciples. But what motivates us? What motivated those disciples? They went from that mountain and were never the same. Their whole lives were engaged from that point forward. Some of them were martyred. Um, John was the only one who lived out a full natural life. And, uh, but every one of them, including Paul who came later, was, were, were 100% engaged with this commission, this, this mandate to go and to make disciples. But how did they maintain that motivation? Well, I think the, the key is looking into the text and recognizing that the Great Commission passage doesn't start in verse 18. The, the pericope, or the paragraph, actually starts in verse 16. Of course, in Matthew 28, we read of the resurrection. We read that Jesus appeared to some of his followers. We read that there was an attempt on the part of the Jewish authorities to cover up the resurrection, pay the guards off, and say that the body was stolen, and so forth. But then we come to verse 16, and I want to read for you what you know as a familiar passage. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, um, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them uh, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the passage itself actually begins in verse 16. So I have a really, really simple outline, just kind of walking our way through the text this morning and noticing a few, I think, uh, important points. Notice, first of all, the participants. Who's there? This is important for our understanding of what's about to happen. It's important to understand the context of what Jesus says in what we call the Great Commission. The participants, very, very simply, are Jesus and 11 disciples. It's 11 disciples because by that point, Judas is dead. Judas had hanged himself. He was no more. Jesus had said to the women at the tomb, go tell Peter and my disciples to meet me in Galilee. This is at least a week later, probably a good bit more than a week later. This probably comes near the end of the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Now what happens here in this passage is not the last time Jesus sees his apostles. You've probably heard someone preach at some point, 
These are Jesus' last words. And last words are always important. And that sounds good, but that's not really true. These are not Jesus' last words. The last words were spoken in Acts chapter 1. They were spoken in Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, at the place of the ascension. This is not the ascension. This is not a parallel. This is not just an alternate version. This is a completely separate occasion. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, he appeared to some women. He appeared to disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to various groups of the 11 disciples. Some, for example, there were 10 gathered. Thomas wasn't there. He comes back later when Thomas is there, eight days later, and he appears and he invites Thomas to touch him, to feel him, to see that he's real, he's flesh and blood, flesh and bone. And so the disciples have seen Jesus by this point multiple times. John tells us that at one point the disciples were back in Galilee, at the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and Jesus appears and meets with them. This is where he restores Peter Ask Peter, do you love me three times? And you're familiar with that passage in John chapter 21. But this passage is a separate occasion. Jesus had told the women, tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. So there they were, the 11 disciples in Galilee. Where, where were they? What's the place? Which says at a mountain. But the scripture doesn't specify which mountain. Was this the Mount of Transfiguration? Was this where Jesus fed 5,000? Was this where Jesus gave the sermon on the mount? We don't know. But apparently the disciples knew. They knew where Jesus intended to meet them because there they were. And sure enough, Jesus keeps the appointment. He shows up at the appointed time and he meets with them. Now what's interesting to me is the perception of the disciples. I really think in essence, this is the key to understanding this whole passage. Look again at verse 17. It says, When they, the eleven disciples, when the eleven disciples saw him, saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now some commentators will say, well, apparently there were people there other than the eleven disciples. But the text is rather specific about who was there. It was 11 people and Jesus. So the question you have to ask yourself is this. In that group of 11 disciples, you have a contrast. Some are worshiping. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping Jesus. And some are doubting. And you have to wonder, what are they doubting? So the natural inclination is to say, well, they must be doubting the resurrection. But think about that. By this point, Jesus had appeared to them multiple times. Jesus had drunk uh, liquid in front of them to show that it doesn't just fall on the ground. He'd eaten food to show that it's actual, he actually had a physical body. He was physically resurrected. He had said, look, you can feel me. You can touch flesh and bones. You can feel what's there. I'm not a spirit. Uh, so he had demonstrated the reality of his physical resurrection to them a number of times by this point. So it doesn't make any sense that any of these 11 would doubt the resurrection. And so the Bible says they worship. What does worship look like for a Jewish person? Well, some Jewish people would be on their knees. You see that multiple times throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the word that's translated here, worship, 
is sometimes translated in our New Testament to kneel before. So it's very likely that some of those disciples are on their knees in front of Jesus, worshiping him. We also find that in some cases, worship, and that same word can be translated to prostrate oneself, to bow before. And here you see an, uh, an artist's rendition of the wise men coming to worship the baby Jesus. And one of them is prostrate. prostrate. He's, he's on his face before the baby. He's worshiping. I imagine that it's very likely that some of those, some of those disciples are in this sort of a position. I think of Thomas, who, uh, when he had first doubted, I'm not going to believe anything until I can put my finger in the, in the holes of his, his wounds. And eight days later, Jesus appears again and says, Okay, Thomas, here's your chance. Come put your finger in the wound. And Thomas' response is, I think probably to fall on his face. The scripture doesn't specifically say that. But he says, You're my Lord. You are my God. So clearly Thomas is ready to worship. And then, of course, some people worship with their hands raised. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. So when you're in a service and people are raising their hands, or maybe some people stand, or maybe some people um, kneel. I don't know that I've seen many people prostrate themselves in the aisle, but if it happens, understand that's entirely biblical. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe it's not cultural for some of us in our background, but that is how people worshipped throughout Scripture. And I imagine that day that there were some of those disciples that are on their knees, some of them have their hands in the air, some of them maybe flat out on their face. They're all Jewish men. They all knew what worship was. It's not just a mental ascent or a mental rendition. It's physical for them. And so Matthew tells us, Matthew writing to a group of Jewish people who would have thought in these terms, they worshiped. But some doubt. Again, what are they doubting? will recognize that in this text, the doubt is not juxtaposed with belief, it's juxtaposed with worship. So I think the doubt doesn't have to do with believing in Jesus as resurrected. I think it has to do with whether or not they should worship. Because to bow your knee, to raise your hands, to fall on your face in front of anyone other than Yahweh, would be blasphemous. Would be a complete abandonment of everything you believe to be true. Now, of course, these disciples understood that Jesus was the Son of God. They had confessed this multiple times. But I suspect that in the moment, at that particular point in history, some of them are in worship positions, and some of them are not exactly sure is this exactly what I should be doing at this moment? In fact, the word that's translated doubt there is an interesting word. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. For those of you who love Greek, it's distadzo. Distadzo doesn't mean to not believe. Doubt as in I don't believe. It means doubt as to be uncertain or to be unstable. The, the only other place where this word for doubt appears in the New Testament, there are other words that the New Testament uses for doubt. But the only other place where this word appears 
is found in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. Do you recognize that verse? It says, um, I can't read that from here. Let me look that up real quick. I'm sorry. I, should have, I thought I was going to be able to see that on the screen, but I don't. Um, Matthew, um, what did I say, 14, 31. Yeah, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now ask, ask yourself, who is this and what's happening? Do you recognize this passage? Can, you can talk to me, it's okay. Who, who is this? Peter. And what's happening? He's trying to walk on water. Right? You remember that passage? They're out in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes walking to them on the water and they're freaked out. There's a spirit. There's a ghost. You know, they're, they're, this is creepy. And, and Jesus calls out and says, be a, be, you know, Peace be unto you. Shalom. It's all good. It's me. It's all okay. And the boat is all over the place. The boat is in the middle of a big storm. I think Peter, I don't think Peter was, no pun intended, showboating. I, I, think, Peter, I think Peter looked at Jesus on the water and the disciples in the boat, and he said, you know what, it's safer out there with him than it is in here with us. And he says, Lord, can I come out there where you are? And Jesus says, yeah, come on. And Peter, probably with no hesitation, jumps over the side of the boat, and he starts trekking out to Jesus. And all of a sudden, you know, he sees waves, and he hears the wind, and he realizes, wait a minute, I can't walk on water. What is this? And he starts to go down. And Jesus reaches out his hand, and he says, oh, Peter. Why do you have such little faith? Why did you doubt? And this is the same word that's used in Matthew 28. I think Matthew is essentially painting for us a word picture. Can you see Peter on the water? He's unstable. He, he's kind of all over the place, right? Can you imagine the disciples in Acts 28? Some are in a position of worship, and others are like... They're unstable. I think that's exactly what Matthew's trying to tell us. So, the question, the issue, is how do I respond to the risen Christ? And Jesus answers the question with his proclamation. The proclamation that all of us know, the proclamation that most of us have memorized, but we maybe have not thought of why does Jesus say these words in this exact moment? I think Jesus is answering the doubters. Jesus is looking at those unstable disciples who are not quite sure what the proper response is, and he says to them, essentially, I am the Lord. I have absolute authority over everything. He says to them, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, not only is it appropriate for you to worship me, you must worship me. That's the only reasonable response. And throughout the remainder of the New Testament, you see this theme over and over again that Jesus is Lord. Jesus deserves to be worshipped. You hear Paul saying, the day will come when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
what Jesus had proclaimed during his earthly ministry over and over and over again, identifying himself as the Son of Man, is now being fulfilled. That passage in Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus, or where, where Daniel sees, along with the Ancient of Days, along with the, the clearly the God of creation, he sees a man who is glorious and is given all power and a kingdom and a dominion. And Jesus uses that expression, Son of Man, of himself more than any other title, more than he calls himself the Son of God, more than he calls himself anything else, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And every time he did, the Jewish people, some of them would just cringe because they knew this text. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Well, when you come to Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus is saying the fulfillment of this is now here. I have been given all dominion, all authority, all power in heaven and in earth. It is now true that I am the absolute, sovereign, undisputed king of everything. And so this leads uh, Abraham Kuyper, one of the great Dutch theologians, to say there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this is mine. And so Jesus tells these disciples, here's reality. You owe me worship. We, we had a great series here. Some of it started before Carrie and I were part of the church, but we were in on the, the second half or more or less of that sermon series from Pastor Sam about worship. And uh, it, was a, it was a masterful, wonderful series of messages. Uh, I have nothing to add to that. I certainly would not presume to add to what uh, Dr. Horn has already said. But when I think of worship, I just think of joyful rendition. It's not just I agree. It's not just I assent. It's I wholeheartedly submit. And with great joy, with great enthusiasm, I say yes Yes, Jesus, yes. And so on that mountain, Jesus is looking at those 11 men saying, okay, guys, it's time to just say yes. It's time to stop having any hesitation whatsoever. And, for the, and, and then you look at what happens. I mean, these, these guys had been cowering in a closed room, a locked room, afraid for their lives. And by the time you get to chapter 2 and 3 and 4 of Acts, they're preaching to multitudes. They're standing face to face with the Jewish authorities and saying, unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. They're, they're, they're filled with this Holy Spirit enthusiasm and power. And in the spirit of worship, in the spirit of complete delight, in the spirit of complete surrender to Jesus, they're doing exactly what he told them to do. Well, you know what he told them to do. This is the part that's really familiar to us. He gives us a mandate, the one mandate, the one imperative in verse uh, 18, uh, or verse 19, I should say, is to make disciples. And as I said at the beginning, that's not just for those 11 apostles. It's not just for 
the professional missionary. That's for every one of us who knows Jesus. Therefore, Jesus says, because you understand the imperative of worshiping me, because I am worthy to be worshipped, not only by you, but by every living creature that has ever existed, by every human being on the entire face of the earth for all time, because I deserve to be worshipped. Make disciples. Go out and find people just like yourself, some near, maybe some far, and teach them about me. Bring them to me. Show them about me. And so you have disciples, these 11, and all who follow in their wake, who are joyfully, delightedly, enthusiastically motivated by worship of Jesus to find other Jesus worshipers, to reproduce themselves so that Jesus can receive the glory that is owed him. Of course, you also know that this mandate includes some components. He says, go. That's technically going in the original language. It's a participle. It's, it's not to, it, it doesn't lessen the intensity or the importance of the word, but it says, here's the command, make disciples, but you can't do that if you're only sitting at home. You've got to go somewhere. Maybe it's across the street. Maybe it's to your kid's bedroom. Maybe it's to school or to work. Or maybe it's to China, or maybe it's to Botswana. It could be wherever the Lord chooses, because when you are fully engaged and fully devoted in worshiping him as he desires to be worshipped, it doesn't really matter where he sends you to go. You're delighted to do whatever he says. So he sends some far, maybe from this congregation. He sends some near. That's for everyone in the congregation. And then he says, not only go, but baptize them so that everyone will know these are now part of my group. These are part of my people. These have chosen, these have understood the call to worship me. Baptism is not just a stage of obedience. I'm not saying it's not that, but it's much more than that. It's a way of publicly identifying. I have decided to follow Jesus. I belong to him. I've been places on the planet. Maybe some of you have too. We're getting baptized is a massive, important decision. It's not just, you know, a rite of passage, a part of growing up in church. No, in places like China, it means you lose your identity. You may be disassociated from your family. You may never be able to hold certain positions in government or in business. I remember talking to a 40-year-old man once in West Africa. The missionary said, talk to, talk to Mahmoud. He seems to understand the gospel, but he's unwilling to commit. You know, as if Vowles has something more intelligent to say to them than the missionary who lives there. But I, so I'd love to meet him, so I talked to him. He was a shoemaker in the market. We talked for a while, and, and Mahmoud understood everything. He said, I believe, I believe, I believe. I said, are you ready to embrace Jesus? Are you ready to surrender yourself? Are you ready to worship him and only him? And he, he hung his head and he said, no. I said, Mahmoud, why not? He said, because then you're going to ask me to be baptized. I said, absolutely. Baptism is a sign that you embrace everything that's true, the entire gospel. He said, the day I do that, my father will kill me. He's a 40-year-old man. The day I do that, my wife will leave me. The day I do that, I lose my children. The day I do that, I'm forced out of the market. 
He said, I'm not ready. And I pray that he did at some point, this some years ago, understand and embrace what it means to be baptized. So Jesus says, uh, go and baptize and then teach them. That's a little different word than make disciple. The King James says teach in both cases, I think. But here it's disciple and then uh, make disciples and then go teach them. Teach them is just to indoctrinate, to, 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 to communicate truth. That's what we do here. That's, that's what this is. That's what the, the, uh, the hour that follows is. That's what we're doing with youth and children, and that's, that's what you do in your home as you read your Bible to your kids. You're, you're teaching them. Teaching them not only to know the bane of American Christianity, I think, is that we, we somehow equate knowledge with discipleship. I'm a good disciple. I know things. No, no. A good disciple is someone who does things. Teach them to observe, to hold, to keep, to guard, to maintain, to do all the things I'm teaching you. Teach that. And so he gives us those three components. And then he gives us a great promise. Again, you know this. Verse um, 20, he says, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he promises us, not only that he's, he gives us a mandate, but he promises us that he's going to be present with us. Sometimes in class, I'll ask students to pray, you know. And they say, Lord, be with us this hour. I don't correct them, but that's not a, that's not a worthy, that's not, that doesn't make any sense, folks. Jesus, please be with me. Do you realize you have no choice in that matter? Not only is God omnipresent, he's everywhere. But beyond that, Jesus has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Ever, 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 ever. It is more certain that Jesus is with us right now than that the sun will come up tomorrow. And Jesus Christ, my Savior, hung on a cross and was abandoned by his Father for the only moment in all of eternity. He was alone, abandoned so that he could look at me and say, Mark, never, ever will I abandon you. Ever. That's the promise. I don't do this, you know, on my own. The Jesus I, Jesus I worship is always with me. Why do I make disciples? Why do I share the gospel? Why do I come to church? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I care? Because I know it's my duty. It's my culture. It's the way I was raised. It's, it's what others expect of me. I'll feel guilty if I don't. Okay, fine. But what's the Bible motivation? Jesus, you're worthy of everything. I, I give everything to you over and over and over and over again. And I want others to know that. Have you ever just walked through your neighborhood and looked around in people's houses and say, oh God, some of those people don't know what it is to worship you. And you pray for them and you look for opportunities to talk to them just because you want them to know the joy, the, the complete and utter thrill of worshiping Jesus as Lord. So, constant presence, but also continued enablement. I'm with you all the way to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. 
Jesus is always with us in the presence of his spirit to give us the power. Sometimes I ask students in classes, are you a good witness for Jesus Christ? And I know the answer. They all, they all immediately examine their shoes. And I don't do it to embarrass them. I want to make a point. The reality is none of us feel adequate. We, we all imagine that one person who's like, you know, committed atheist and has spent years of his life studying Richard Dawkins or whatever, and he's going to have all these great arguments. That person, that conversation happens one in a thousand. We, we, you know, we assume that's going to be our, but it's usually not. So we say, well, I, I don't know enough. Do you realize that most of you know more than most pastors on planet Earth? Just by being in church like this, you know more Bible, you've understood more Christian truth than many pastors around the planet who have almost no Bible education whatsoever. And the reality is, this isn't about me. It really isn't even about my ability. It's about Jesus. I just tell people what I know. And somebody else may know more than you. Surely there are people who know more than me, but I can tell what I know. I can tell them what Jesus has done for me. I can tell them why I delight in worshiping Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, that's what motivates missionaries. That's what motivates pastors. That's what motivates Sunday school teachers and people who serve and work in the local church. That's what motivates you to share a gospel tract with somebody at Walmart or to give a, a, have a conversation across the fence with your neighbor. It's Jesus is Lord. I love him. I want you to love him. I want you to enjoy what I enjoy when I bow before him and know that he is ever with me. John Piper sort of summarized all of this. This is from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Missions exist because worship does not. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't command what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord, I will be glad and exalt in thee, I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. So maybe, maybe when we think of missions, whether it's our engagement or someone we're praying for in places like Ecuador or elsewhere around the world, we shouldn't think first and foremost of go. We shouldn't even think first and foremost of make disciples. We should think first and foremost, stop doubting. And give everything to the one who is alone worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to share with these brothers and sisters. I do pray that you will rise, raise up from our number, people who will go to hard places around the planet, but I also pray that you will raise us up to go to the easy places across the street, and help us not to focus so much on us and our weaknesses. We all have plenty of weaknesses. Help us to focus on Jesus. 
and to be so delighted with who he is, so joyful for what he has done, that we will carry his name on our lips everywhere we go. We pray it in his name. Amen.